Set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins, and give us, we beseech thee, the liberty of that abundant life which thou hast manifested to us in thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, February the 6th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, We had a good week, I think. Seems like anyway. Seems like kind of a blur at this point. Um, It's My friends are all getting better. All the friends that I have that have been in the hospital with COVID and all that stuff are all getting better, so that's a good thing. Um, we've, we're still struggling along with colds here at the house, so that's not too bad. Um, could be a heck of a lot worse. And so not too worried about any of that, but, uh, yeah, so we just had, you know, nothing particularly exciting this week. Suzanne had a birthday this week, so we went and checked out a French Canadian restaurant here in Asheville and it was really good. We had a good time and uh, Will went with us and we enjoyed that time together. So there's a lot of things going on in, in lives around here, a lot of changes and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, kind of dreary couple of days with um, rain and overcast skies and all that kind of stuff and sort of mid-40s weather, you know, sort of the, the worst part of southern winter. Um, but, it, you know, other than that, it, it's been a good week. We've, we've been um, not too busy this week, to be honest with you, but I've got a good friend who's been in town, so I've got to spend some time with him. That's been a good thing. I hadn't seen him in a year or so, so that's a really good thing. And, and just, you know, kind of enjoying life right now and um, – and just getting through things. Um, today, the if I had to say there's one big overriding um, word that sits over the top of everything that I want to talk about today, it has to do with this. The, the word would be unworthy. And you see it in all three of these lessons. You're going to see um, a proclamation by the sort of protagonist in each of these uh, lessons, their, their own proclamation of their own unworthiness. Um it, it tends to be actually the most important thing we can um, say to the Lord, <laughs> especially if we're called. It's to say, I'm unworthy to, to fulfill that call. Um, one of the funny things that, that I think in American politics, for instance, is that every time there's a new president, the other side, whichever side it is, doesn't make any difference, um, begins to publish things, and, and I start seeing it on social media where people are saying, here are the definitions or, or the characteristics of a narcissist, and it applies 100% to the, to, to the guy who's in the White House right now. Well, it does. <laughs> I don't care which side you're on. If you think that you're capable of being president of the United States, if you think you're capable of navigating that whole sphere of influence across the world and also um, controlling the American economy and all the stuff that comes along with being president, you are by definition a narcissist. You, you have a, an inflated sense of your own self if you choose to run for president of the United States. So uh, it's it, you just are. There, there's no way around it. If you think you're qualified and capable of doing that job, then you're you're applying for a job that's just less than God, right? I mean, it's just it, it's pretty close to that. And so you've got to have an exalted opinion of yourself to stand up and say, "Elect me to be president of the United States." And so we that's what we want, though, in politicians. We want them to be confident. Right. I mean, all our leaders, we want our leaders to be confident people. We, we don't want somebody who who is not sure, you know, that they can do the job. 
And so, but that's not true in the church. One of the biggest problems in the church can become people who are self-called because they have some sort of charismatic part of their personality or, or they speak well or they do this, that, and the other things. And, and then what you end up with is people who are ambitious for themselves, not for the kingdom of God. I mean, it's not to say that they don't care about the kingdom of God, but primarily they can care about themselves. I read an article this week, or actually a couple of articles, about a church in my hometown that has experienced a lot of problems recently with their leadership, and they've had to ask the, the main pastor to step down, and it was a big church. But the problem, the, pro- the presenting problem, was he'd been having an affair with somebody who worked for him. So that was the presenting problem, sort of like what happened over at CNN, except in this case, it's in the church. That's a huge problem. You should have to step down if you're having an affair with somebody in the church. But the other side of it is is that, that there were a whole lot of other bad behaviors too. I mean, like at some point in time, somebody told one of the people that was interviewed, hey, we need you to kick in 200 bucks because pastor, whatever his name is, um, would like a pair of Gucci slip- slippers. And so you see this stuff, and, and so it's, he built a, a, a group of people around him who were incredibly loyal to him, no matter what he did or what he said. And then ultimately that comes crashing down. And we've seen it happen again and again in the church. Uh, people who are glib, people who are you know well-spoken sometimes and all that, the character actually matters more than that. And I think that that's one of the things that we tend to overlook in the world. But in, in these three lessons today, what you're going to see is three different men, all of whom— um, deny that they're able to do what God needs to be done, but God says, I, I'm going to enable you. We could, we could add also into this, we could read the, um, the passage where Moses argues with God about being sent back to Pharaoh by saying, I, I don't speak well. And he continues to argue with God about this until God finally says, look, I'm going to take control of your mouth and I'm going to say these things. And he just he still won't do it. And so he says, "Okay, here's Aaron. Aaron will be your spokesman. I'll speak to you and you'll speak to Aaron. And then he'll speak to the Pharaoh here. And and so ultimately, that's not how it kind of plays out. But there's there's a way to go too far with that humility that when God calls, he also equips. That's the important thing to understand. It's what you're going to see in all these lessons. This is that God calls and equips, but we have to step into that role humbly. But once we are equipped and once we're in the role, we need to be bold about that. But we always need to be humble about the Word of God. We need to, to, to say, I'm not going to read more into the text than is there. I want to be careful with the Word of God. But at the same time, if I have a role that I've been given to do, then I need to step into that role boldly. So in the first lesson in Isaiah 6, 1 to 13, I feel like I've read this lesson and commented on it and thought about it a million times over the course of the last 20 or so years. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he's telling us where he is. He is in the temple, in some part of the temple, and while he's there, he sees a vision, and that vision is God on a throne, high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filling the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two with he flew. And he called to another, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so that's something that we sing. 
kind of regularly in Anglican worship, but it's also the same thing that you see in the Revelation. You see the same basic picture of these seraphim flying around and declaring the holiness of God. And so it's what's funny is we can we can boil everything down to God is love, but the angels seem not to do that. They seem to think that holiness is actually more the character of God than love. And that holiness is important. And it's important for Isaiah, and it's important for us. And I think sometimes we become too glib and too familiar, maybe that's a better word, too familiar with God, the presence of God in in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we take it for granted, and we don't any longer think about his holiness and his otherness. And that otherness actually matters. That otherness is what assures us that ultimately sin will be judged, and ultimately, things will be put right. We need a holy God to give us hope for the next world, that it'll be better than this. It'll be the world that we really expected, because it'll be the world that's not broken by sin. And so the holiness of God is an important and necessary characteristic for our hopes for the future. Because what we need is a holy God who enforces that holiness, and then his people are themselves holy. And it's what he always says that he wants, whether that's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We're told that we're to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests serving our God. That holiness matters. We need to be pursuing that holiness in our own lives. I'm not claiming to be good at that, and I'm not claiming to be even focused on it much of the time. But it's an important part of the character of God, and therefore it's an important part of the character of God's people. And Isaiah sees this, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who, is, who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What he's seen is is a vision and an image of a holy God. And in that vision of holiness, he sees how far he is from that. And he sees the divide between himself and God. And he recognizes, I'm liable for judgment because of this. Because the gulf is so great, and I am such a miserable offender. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so then one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lip. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So you confessed that you have unclean lips. So he takes a burning coal from the altar and places it on his mouth and says, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You confessed a sin and you confessed rightly that you're a person of unclean lips, but now I've dealt with that problem. And your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Well, what atoned for his sin? I mean, sacrifice is what's necessary to atone for sin, but did Isaiah offer any kind of sacrifice at all? No, he didn't. But then what we see is, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. There's your sacrifice. It's the sacrifice Paul talked about. It's a living sacrifice. 
So your sin is atoned for. I have made you a new creation. You're now made holy or declared to be holy. We've dealt with the problem, and now Isaiah is willing. Before that, he knew that he couldn't go. He could not go because his sin stood between him and the mission of God. And now, though, when God says, who shall I send and who will go for us? He says, here am I, send me. I'll be a living sacrifice. That's his response to God dealing with his sin and declaring him to no longer be guilty. And he, God, said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I I don't understand the mission. The mission is what exactly? It's to make people's hearts dull, their ears heavy, and their eyes blind so that they won't turn to you and be healed like I just was. So my job is to turn people away from you and to keep them from repentance. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so what God is announcing judgment on these people, and he wants me to go talk to these people and, and make them turn away from my own message so that they don't repent, so that this devastation can happen in the land? You know I think maybe I volunteered for this job a little too presumptuously, let's say. I think I jumped in and said, here am I, send me, when I didn't know what the job was. And now that I know what the job was, why would I want the job? I don't want to see judgment brought on the land. But God's telling him, no, this is your job. Your job is to go out and and tell people about all this and tell them the truth. And they won't see it today. They'll only see it later. They'll only see it after they go through all this stuff. And, and the problem is, is that what we would all like, we'd all like to do this in our own lives, right? That, that if God wants to judge us and he's got something that he wants to convict us of and something he wants us to change, then, then I, I would like it if he would just tell me that and say, John, if you change this thing, then you're going to be perfectly fine. You know? And I'd like to believe that the Holy Spirit within me would want to do that and cooperate with that, but I know that that's not entirely the truth because I know there are things in my life that God would prefer not to be there. And I'm not changing from that. And so I, I need to, but there are certain things in our lives that, that we're not oblivious to exactly because we know that they're problems, but you know, it's not hurting me. But it is. I'm not aware of what could be. I'm only aware of of what is. And God wants so much more for us, but he needs us to be like Isaiah and confess that sin before he can make us the people. We have to see it in ourselves before God can actually do the work of making us the people that he needs us to be. Before we can become a holy nation, we need to see ourselves as a sinful nation. We need to see our failures we need to see our unworthiness. We need to see the reality 
that we're not fit for the service of a holy God, but he can make us so. He can mold us and make us into the kind of people who can do the work that he's given us to do and that he wants us to do, but he needs us to be the right kind of people in order to do that. We shouldn't be presumptuous about taking a call upon ourselves, but whenever God calls us to do something, then that should cause us to do some self-examination, to say, I can't do it and be the person that I am today. There's certain things that have to change. You know, it's, it, I'm a person of unclean lips, or whatever it is that, that God's convicting you of, and then you're fit for the work that he's given you to do, whatever that mission is. And in Isaiah's case, it was, it was to just tell all the things that were going to happen with the knowledge on the front end that it was not going to lead the nation to repentance. In the gospel, you know, we're early in Jesus's ministry. He has only recently sort of proclaimed that, that if you watch me and keep your eyes on me, then you'll see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about this Messiah. And then you'll be, if you measure me against that, then you'll see that I am the Messiah. And so he has just done that not too long ago up in Nazareth. And now here we are. He's still up in Galilee. And on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he stood as he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. So they were away from the boats. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, he asked him, Simon, to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. He needed some separation between himself and the people so that he could see the people, and they could all see him. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And so what he's saying is, is that I'm a fisherman and I fished all night. It's what I do. It's what I know. And we fish at night. We don't fish in the daytime. We, we fish at night. But because you said it after having heard Jesus and having been around and known things about Jesus, he says, I'll let down the nets. I'll do what you asked, even though I've just finished cleaning the nets so that they're ready to go tomorrow night or tonight when we get ready to fish again. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they both began to sink. The catch was so huge that that both boats are now swamped with the catch after fishing all night and catching nothing at all. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Interesting. It's the same exact reaction that Isaiah had to the vision of the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim flying around. He sees Jesus. Jesus tells him to fish and he catches this huge catch of fish and he knows that this is a miracle and he ascribes it to God. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken and so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll catching men. You'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Peter sees that he is unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. And yet Jesus comforts him and doesn't say, No, 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 no. You're not a bad man at all. No, he's saying the same thing. Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. I have a job for you. Now, there's some bad parts to that job, right? I mean, Peter ends up dying 
on a cross upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. He wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way because he continued to see Jesus as that person. But at the same time, the relationship between him and Jesus changed him. And he understood forgiveness. He understood forgiveness in a a profound way because he portrayed Jesus exactly as Jesus prophesied that he would do. And then after that, Jesus gloriously restores him in a very similar kind of a situation because they're out in their boats. They're gone fishing after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. They've gone fishing. They didn't know what else to do, so they went back to what they knew. And then suddenly they see a man on the shore, and Peter knows immediately that's the Lord. And he swims to him, and he falls to his knees in front of Jesus. And Jesus restores him gloriously and says that he makes him in charge of everything because now he's fit to be. He's no longer the man that he thought he was. There were times, not this day in this particular reading, when he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. There are times when he undertakes to, well, lecture Jesus. And that's when Jesus has to turn to him and say, get behind me, Satan. He can be both these people. (laughs) He can be the person who, who sees Jesus and understands who he is and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He's afraid of judgment. He's a, he knows himself, but he's also the same guy who can later lecture Jesus when Jesus starts talking about the crucifixion. He's also the one who can boldly proclaim that even if everybody else leaves, I'll be with you, and then a few hours later, abandon Jesus in every single way possible. He's also the man who can then be restored. He's also the man who can stand before the Sanhedrin and say there's no other name given under heaven by which a man might be saved. But the man, Peter, had to be transformed. And it begins with the confession of sin. And it begins then, once you make the confession of sin and your guilt is taken care of, your sin is atoned for, then now, from that place of love and forgiveness, after the recognition of the unworthiness of a human being to be before a holy God, then we can be of use. When we've come to the end of ourselves and recognized that his, his glorious majesty, his holiness, then once we've done that and bowed the knee and confessed our sins and repented, which means that not only did I just say that I sinned, I also see it as an abomination to you, and I'll no longer do those things, then we can be of use to the Lord. doesn't mean we'll be without sin, doesn't mean we will have conquered that sin even specifically. But, but we're more fit because we understand that we walk before a holy God and that we serve him and, and we take that seriously as a responsibility and as a joy to serve him because we know our own unworthiness. And, we, and in that confession of our unworthiness, what we have confessed actually is his supreme worthiness. And it's the same confession that's made in, by, by all of heaven in Revelation 5, after the Lamb, looking like it was slain, appears before the throne and takes the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne. And then worthiness is what heaven proclaims. You are worthy. Worthiness. So we understand our own unworthiness simply because we see it in contrast to his supreme worthiness. And until we get to that place, until we get to the, to the place where we can see truly who this God is and who we are in light of that, then we're not really prepared to be servants. 
We have to know how to worship first. And worship is nothing more than the ascribing of worth. And so in the First uh, Corinthians passage here, Paul is, he says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. So you received it in the past, you're standing in it today, and you will be saved by it in the future conditionally if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So I'm reminding you that the only important thing on earth is this gospel that I preach to you. It was important when you heard it, it's important today when you stand in it, and it's equally important tomorrow when you're saved by it, if you hold fast to the word. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. And it's basically, the next part is a recitation of a creedal statement. I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. One, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. Two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Four, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Five, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And what he's saying is, if you want confirmation of this, there are people who can give you confirmation today that they saw the resurrected Jesus. Six, that he appeared then to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, I'm younger than the rest of them, he appeared also to me. And then he makes this next statement. So all these things are true. Last, he appeared to me because I was untimely born. I was younger than them. I wasn't, I wasn't called to be one of his disciples. For I am the least, not the last, the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. There's a specific sin that he has to confess in order to understand his unworthiness. I persecuted the church of God. And before that, he believed that he was serving God within Judaism. He didn't see the inextricable Trinitarian connection between this Jesus and God the Father. But I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's not claiming to not be an apostle. He's claiming to be unworthy to be an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, which is an apostle. And his grace towards me was not in vain. He didn't waste his grace on me. And that's exactly what he had said was possible for them. right? Because what he said was, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, it won't have any effect at all. And you just chose it for the purpose of vanity. But if you don't hold fast to that confession, if you don't hold fast to that word, if you don't hold fast to those things that I just said were the gospel, then you believed in vain, which is for the purpose of vanity, but also at the same time, it's of no effect at all. And Paul says that in him, however, by grace, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. He's not taking credit for that. He's not saying I've become worthy because I worked hard. He said, no, I worked hard because it was grace given to me to do this thing. I was compelled, he says in other places, to preach this. I don't have any choice. 
God working within me and driving me and spurring me on is why I do this. I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to see the kingdom of God grow and expand. I want to see the fulfillment of the promise of his presence with us as we go about the mission. That's why I do this, he says. He never says I'm worthy, whether than it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Doesn't matter to me, he says. Whether it's because I preached or those other people preached, doesn't matter. What matters is you believe and you hold fast to this. And, and we can all consider ourselves to be unworthy people. We're, none of us are, not a single person is worthy to serve the living God. Not a single one of us is worthy by any standard that we can come up with to be saved, to receive the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of salvation and to know the truth about all things, to have the hope of everlasting life. None of us are worthy of that because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's exactly what Paul says. But it's Christ who makes us worthy, and it's his worthiness we bask in. He makes us worthy. And why does he do that? Why did he choose us? Well, we have no earthly idea. We can't possibly ever look back and say, God chose me because of these virtues in me. And so we look at Abraham and we say, why did God choose Abraham? Well, there's a Jewish response to that. And the Jewish response to that is, well, it's because his father, Terah, was an idol maker back there in the day. And and Abraham hated that because he knew that there was only one God. And therefore, he shattered and smashed his father's idols. There's a much bigger story and a more elaborate story than that. But that's the gist of it is that he smashed his father's idols. And his father came home and said, why did you do this? And he said, well, they told me to do it. And he said, well, his father looked at him and said, well, they're, they're just idols. And he said, don't you hear what you just said? That they couldn't possibly have spoken to me and they couldn't have done anything. And therefore, they're just idols. And so that, that's the reason that they say that he was um, able and worthy to be chosen by God. But the reality is, is that the worthiness is not determined at the moment in which we were chosen. It's determined in our obedience and who we become and what we do. Worthiness is proven by a life that's changed. Worthiness is proved down the road. We become the people that God believes and sees that we should be and can be by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so to the extent that we're being changed into his likeness, then what we're happening is we're being changed into the likeness of the one who is the only one who was worthy. It's a great gift and it's a great grace given to us. We need to acknowledge our unworthiness and then we need to allow him constantly to be working in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit to pull out those things that are not pleasing to him and to make us more and more like his son, the one that we only know to be worthy. And that's the point. And it begins with that confession. It begins the confession of sin. It begins with with moving forward from there. I want to end this by reading what I think is one of the most extraordinary prayers that is constantly weaving itself in and out of my life and in and out of the teachings that I do. I I constantly hear this prayer in my mind and in my heart. And it's called the General Thanksgiving, and it's part of the service of morning prayer in the Anglican prayer books. And it's a very old prayer. It it dates back to about 1660. Um, It was composed by a Puritan, actually, who was also a bishop. And and in in the 1660s, there was a, a desire 
for, for that mix of Puritanism and Anglicanism to come together. And so when the prayer book was came out in, in 1662, when that prayer book came out, this prayer was included in response to sort of Puritan pressure to say, there's not enough thanksgiving <laughs> in that prayer book. And so this prayer was composed specifically to remedy that problem. But so what I want you to hear is, is the balance and the interplay between thankfulness and unworthiness. And, and I encourage you to make it your own. I'll put it in the notes to the show. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, thine unworthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we beseech thee, give us that due sense of all thy mercies, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, and that we show forth thy praise not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to thy service, and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen.